Good morning, Grace family. I am missing you more than ever this morning. I can't remember a time, I think, that I have felt more heartbroken than I do right now. It's not because I haven't gone through heartbreaking things in my life, but I've never done it outside of the fellowship of God's people the way this quarantine has required that we do this. I am sadder than I can ever remember being, I think, because of that. I'm angry, and I need you to pray for me if I'm going to get through this sermon this morning in a way that will be helpful to all of you. Uh, I desperately needed to be singing these songs with all of you this morning, that even in the midst of all the storms that rage, God is still our God. He's the hope of our salvation, and we cling to that. So would you pray for me? Uh, Throughout this sermon, would you pray with me now as we go into this sermon? Because the words we just sang a few minutes ago are so true for me right now. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing. For in my need, his power is displayed. That's how God works. And so because I feel weak does not make me feel full of despair. It actually gives me hope because I know that it's in our weakness that God works most powerfully. So would you pray with me now? Heavenly Father, we come before you as a church family and as an extended family with those watching all over the world in great need of you. Lord, we always are in great need of you, but we so seldom get to the end of ourselves. And so often it takes life's circumstances, as we have been experiencing now, to get us to the end of ourselves. And Lord, I know I feel way past the end of myself. And I know I'm not alone in this, and I know the Davis family is feeling grief like never before right now. And I know people all over our country and our world are feeling a sense of the reality of death and our frailty and that we aren't in control like we like to think we are. And that's good, Lord, because then we go to you. Lord, I'm sorry. For me, it's so often a last resort rather than a first instinct. And so I pray that you would powerfully use the tragedies in our world and in our church family right now um, to take us much further in getting to the end of ourselves and to dependence on you. So Heavenly Father, we pray for the Davis family. We pray for the Floyd family. We pray for your church around the world as they gather or don't gather during this Sunday. And we pray that you would be powerfully working through your people, giving us hope in the midst of the storm, giving us a rock-solid confidence that you really are who you say you are. And although it seems so often to us it's taking you an awfully long time to bring justice once and for all, and bring peace and love and joy and harmony and reconciliation and restoration, Lord. It seems long to us, but we know you're the God of eternity. And we know for you, it's not long. And your timing is perfect, so we trust you in this time. And pray that you would give us great hope. And Lord, you have chosen this passage in our preaching calendar this morning, and we pray you'd use it powerfully to help us. Lord, would you help me? Would you help all of us to learn and grow and be transformed by the power of your word as the Spirit works like we have seen you do so many times? And so we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, when I say I'm brokenhearted, it's because there's this cumulative effect that in the midst of this, this, this separation from God's people, that 
I've been aware of but has been sneaking up on me in ways I didn't even realize. I've, I've had things in the news. I mean, there's always a barrage of bad news. You just can't escape it. it but there have been a few things going on in our culture that have particularly devastated me and made me feel like I don't know what to do. You know, just after the Ahmad Arbery situation that made me so burdened, I, I read a story about a young lady named Rahema who when she became a Christian in Uganda, her father set her on fire. And I think of persecuted Christians around the world and I think of how easy my life is and I, I feel like I want to do so much and I do, I pray, and we give, and we, we have missionaries in some of the most challenging places in the world, but I can feel so helpless in the midst of that. Last week, I also read about an elderly couple in their mid-80s who were at their son's grave at the Delaware Veterans Memorial Cemetery, visiting their son who died when he was 51. He had cerebral palsy his whole life. And they were both shot and killed visiting their son's grave in the cemetery. And I think of how the elderly are treated in our society, and it breaks my heart. In this situation with George Floyd, we shouldn't have to see a video to be devastated by something like that happening. But I'm thankful that we get to because it seems like we need to be able to see it and not just hear about it or read about it, to have it affect us the way it needs to. And to see the aftermath of that and the hurt and the pain and the struggle and now the violence and the greed in some areas that's taken over that's actually dishonoring the name of George Floyd. I recognize the problems of racism and injustice and division and hatred even in the church is something that is devastating. And one of the things I love most about the Christian life is it acknowledges the reality of evil. It doesn't try to explain it away. It's, you know, just yin and yang, and it's just all the circle of life. No, the Christian view of things says there's evil and there's good. There's light and there's dark. And we need to be people of the light and hate the darkness. And the Bible tells us that in the midst of life in this fallen world, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. A few months ago, I was talking to a father who lost his son in a car accident when he was just 20 years old. And I asked him how he dealt with the grief of that. And he said in the midst of grieving his son, he read the verse, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. And he said, I read that and I thought, if that's true, well then why wouldn't I want to be brokenhearted and crushed in spirit if I'm sure that God draws near to people who are like that? And it's hard for us to say that and mean that. But we need to realize that God does not save us from a distance. He's the God who saves the brokenhearted and crushed in spirit by coming right alongside us and sends his son to become the man of sorrows. Familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. He not only saves us from our sorrow and our suffering, he enters into it, I would argue, more deeply and profoundly than anyone ever has. He takes it upon himself and he saves us in becoming the man of sorrows who's familiar with suffering and acquainted with grief. He understands better than anyone what he saves us from. I felt like I had to wear this sweatshirt this morning. It was a gift to me by a dear friend of mine named Jarvis Taylor. Some of you here at Grace may know Jarvis. He's been to Grace quite a few times. He usually will come to the 8 a.m. service and then uh, quickly leave because he needs to go back to his church where he's a member and a minister, Citizens of Zion, just not too far from here in Compton. 
And Jarvis and I have become good friends through the years, through um, our ministry there at Citizens of Zion and his visits here. And one day Jarvis had one of these on, and I said, Jarvis, I love your sweatshirt. And I wasn't fishing for a gift, but he gave me one. He's also an amazing graphic designer and perhaps the best cooker of steaks on the planet. Well, Jarvis gave me one of these sweatshirts, and I love this sweatshirt. And I love that Jarvis loves this sweatshirt. And I felt like I had to wear it this morning because it refers to a passage that we need to hear before we dive into our passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 14. I want to hear another passage that the same author of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul wrote, but to the church at Ephesus. Listen to what he says in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And you... We're dead. Not in need of more education or better political programs or more time or better parenting or better politicians or, or, or anything. Oh, those things are important and we want to emphasize the importance of those things. But in our sinful condition before God, nothing on an earthly plane will save us. God needs to do it. He tells us we're dead. In our trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. And who are those sons of disobedience? Verse 3, among whom we all once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It couldn't have been worse. All we had coming to us was the righteous wrath of God, the righteous judgment of a holy God. We had nothing as an identity but being children of wrath, with our inheritance being judgment. That's all we had. We couldn't save ourselves. We had no power to do that, no ability to do that, but that, thank God, is not the end of the story. Listen to the rest of the story. Verse 4. But God, it had to be God. It couldn't have been anyone else. It had to be God. He's the one we offended with our sin. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. But God, that's uh, the answer to our problems. God taking the initiative in his sovereign freedom to save us when we didn't deserve it when we couldn't have earned it, we couldn't have proven anything but our sinfulness, and he saves us. But God changes everything. I've never felt a greater lack of answers in my life than this time of my life. I don't know the answers to this worldwide pandemic. I don't know on an earthly plane the answers to the injustice and the racism and the cruelty and the things in our society that are ripping people apart and causing the kind of devastation and destruction and evil we see all around the world. I don't have any answers today on a political level, on a social level, on a sociological level. The only answers I feel sure of today are the answers that come after the words, but God. 
This has made me more desperate to know the gospel in its depths and to help you, Grace family, to understand the gospel in its depths, not as some some candy coating or, or veneer that just doesn't make us face the realities of the world. See, we're made for good works. It doesn't mean we just detach from the world and and just wait for Jesus to come back. No, we're created for good works. You don't just sprinkle the gospel in to ignore the realities of evil in the world. But what it does is give us a perspective on this world and the world to come and helps us to live never basing our faith in anything this world alone can offer. And so we're people of the gospel, the good news that God sent his son in Jesus Christ, but God is the only solution, the only one. And doesn't mean we disconnect. We're made for good works, but it does mean the gospel is the answer that we live our lives grounded in. And that's what we depend on. So let's continue our series through 1 Corinthians. Oh, I was so tempted. I was this close to calling the elders and saying, guys, I'm supposed to preach on 1 Corinthians 14 this morning, but maybe we should just call it off and have a prayer time. And we're going to do that tonight at 5 o'clock. Please join us for that. We're going to pray for the things going on in our church family and in the broader culture in the world. So we're going to have a time of prayer. But at Grace, we trust God's providence and we trust his word. And I'm convinced he has a word for us right in the midst of all the things we're going through in the second half of 1 Corinthians chapter 14. So would you go there, please? 1 Corinthians 14. And we'll begin at verse 26. We've been preaching through the book of 1 Corinthians. In some ways, this church of Corinth is so much like we are. So uh, battling with the same sorts of issues that we battle with. Sexual immorality and superficiality and pride and arrogance. So many of the things we in our culture, especially in Southern California, deal with. But this morning's passage, as I studied it, I said, I don't think in the details of this morning's passage, we at Grace have these particular problems. But that doesn't mean there aren't vital things for us to learn in this passage. So let's look at this passage. There are really three things, I think, going on here. That there is a word first about worship. And then a word about women. And then a word of warning. So worship, women, and warning is what we're going to hear this morning. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we'll pick it up in verse 26. 1 Corinthians 14, 26. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or at the most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged? And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they're not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I'm writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So my brothers, 
earnestly desire to prophesy. And do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. So, what does this have to do with us this morning? There is much in this passage we could talk about. And here I feel very dependent on your availing yourselves in the previous weeks as we've gone through 1 Corinthians, and if not online listening to the sermons of our preaching team as we've gotten to this point finally in the book. There's so much we have covered at this point, and it all needs to be loaded in to what we understand this morning, and we simply don't have time to do that. So I'm deeply depending on Kenny's sermon from last week as he preached the first half of this chapter and got so many of these important definitions of prophecy and tongues and the purpose of the corporate gathering. I'm depending on Jackson's sermon the week before that on everything being for love in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm depending so much on Randy's sermon, on the body of Christ and the way we work together with no one being too important or unimportant. I'm depending on my sermon I preached in 1 Corinthians 12 on gifts being given to everyone. We're all gifted children. And we all are to exercise that gift for the good of others and for the edification of the saints for the glory of God. I'm depending this morning on Jackson's sermon. He preached in chapter 11 on male and female headship and submission. So all that needs to be loaded in. I can't get to it. I'm trusting if you haven't gotten it clear in your mind and in your notes, you'll go back and listen and watch those sermons. But this morning, there are some things I want to make sure we get to. First, this word about worship. What is he telling us about worship this morning? Well, what we have here is more correction than instruction. What's happening in Corinth is they had a, a high priority on superficial impressiveness in Corinthian culture in general. And now that had invaded the church. And so the superficial impressiveness of a miraculous gift like tongues now started to take on an inordinate importance and it became almost a competitive thing. Where, where someone was speaking and outspeaking another and it ended up being chaotic and not edifying because it wasn't instructive. And so Paul is trying to pull the reins back, not because tongues are wrong or not of the Lord here, but because they weren't being used in a way with the main goal in mind, which is the edification of the saints for the advance of the gospel to the glory of God. All grounded in love. And so we see this gathering, as we defined last week when Kenny preached, is for orderly edification, motivated by love, and grounded in intelligible instruction for the sake of the gospel. That's what this is about. Orderly edification, building up of the saints, motivated by love, grounded in intelligible instruction for the sake of the gospel, for the advance of the good news of Jesus Christ in the but God passage we just read. And that's what Paul's been emphasizing over and over again. And next week when Randy dives into chapter 15, we will see so clearly that it's about Christ and him crucified. That's what all this adds up to. But on the way there, we need to pay particular attention to the way we gather, the way we worship, the way we conduct ourselves, and the mentality and heart we have as we go into that. And so the verse verse is very instructive. Verse 26 tells us what's happening in Corinth. And he says this, what then, brothers? So th this actually has turned a corner and he's becoming quite direct with them. He is putting them in their place and he softens it a bit with brothers, emphasizing the familial nature that we're family, even though he's exhorting and reproving them. And he says, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Now that list tells us something very important that Paul is approvingly describing about worship in Corinth that I believe should also describe what happens among God's people whenever we gather. But this is not an exhaustive list. It doesn't say anything about the Lord's Supper. It doesn't say anything about the preaching of the word, what we're doing right now. It doesn't say anything about baptism. It doesn't say anything about the order in worship he's about to get to. When those things are described, we see a wonderful, interactive, 
worship corporate experience that has spontaneity to it, that's practicing the priesthood of all believers. It's not spectators watching the paid professionals lead everything. There's a wonderful emphasis on the people of God. He says, each of you. Now, I don't think that means everyone brought every one of those things, but he's acknowledging that when you come to the corporate gathering, which I am missing so deeply these days, as I'm sure you all are as well. When we gather, we don't come to watch. We don't come to spectate. We come to minister as priests of our God. And different people bring different things. And we recognize these, these teachings, these instructions, these, someone's leading out in a hymn, a song. A lesson, a revelation seems to be a prophetic word. A tongue, there it is, this miraculous gift of speaking a, a language that the speaker doesn't understand, but when interpreted, builds up the saints. These things happen. Now, now so I want you to notice something here. This description is describing for us an orderly but what could be seen as disorderly display. When you think about how much order we tend to have at our church, and most churches tend to have in, in a lot of traditions, this can seem almost out of control. But this gathering for edification is interactive and spontaneous, and it's in the midst of regulated worship, but it's interactive, and the Spirit's leading, and we don't know everything that's going to happen, and there's no doubt an excitement. The worship in Corinth was not boring. Now, it was often unedifying and motivated improperly, but it wasn't boring, and it, it seemed very exciting. Now, this, again, this is a description and not a proscription of how things need to be, and it's not an exhaustive list, but it is something we need to think about. And I know we as leaders, as we've preached through this and prepared to preach it, have been talking a lot about how much freedom we allow for those sorts of things to happen at Grace. Now, we do have some things built in. We have a reflection service, which has freedom for these sorts of things. It has freedom for some to bring a prophetic word. It has freedom for someone to speak with an interpretive, uh, interpreted tongue. It has freedom to bring instruction for someone to lead a hymn or a song. Now, we don't always experience that kind of freedom the way we long to. But I just want to encourage you, saints, to come to our gatherings when they resume. And as you're having them even now in your home, don't come as spectators. Come as ministers and contributors and even leaders of what God is doing as he gives gifts for us to bless the body with. I know in our reflection services, some of you already feel uncomfortable enough by some of the things that happen. Or when we open it up in our services and someone prays a prayer that you're not quite sure of, and then it's up to the, the elders to, to correct if need be. And we have had to do very little of that through the years. Our family time gives opportunity for these things to happen. And I think they do happen. We might not use the same vocabulary as some charismatic churches do, but Sherry Hara has stood up in a reflection service and brought words that are prophetic. Carol Peel's done that. Jonathan's done that. Lots of people in our congregation have done that. And it, we hear a word and we say, that was not just Sherry reading her notes. That was the Lord. Guiding Sherry, maybe for weeks before the reflection service, to now bring a word that he really is bringing home to us. And so God is at work. He's alive and powerful and active as the Spirit works in each of our lives. And I, I love that this passage is a corrective for what would typically be called charismatic churches and a corrective for churches more like graces in the tradition that we come out of. It says to charismatic churches, this isn't about your personal uh, expression only. This isn't just about having an experience. This isn't about chaos. There needs to be order. There needs to be instruction that builds up. But this is also a correction to churches more like ours that have a, a strong emphasis on teaching and instruction. And a strong emphasis on order, I would say. We, we have more freedom than, than many churches more like ours. But still, uh, we, if we're going to err, it's most likely going to be on the side of order and instruction. And probably not enough 
of seeking the Spirit to work, even if it makes us really uncomfortable. And that's what we need to seek, experience grounded in instruction. The Spirit and truth, which is exactly how Jesus told the Samaritan woman new covenant worship would be. In spirit, in other words, very personal and subjective and an active presence of God, but grounded in truth. It's both of these things. Listen to how Tom Schreiner puts it. Vibrancy and order are not enemies but friends. And the gifts themselves can be controlled because God's not a God of disorder, chaos, and confusion, but of peace and order. And so our challenge is to discern, as we're commanded to in this passage, the, the spirit, when he's at work, if he's really the one at work, but never quench the spirit. So discernment without quenching is what we're after here. And we invite you as God's people to take this more seriously. I know there are people of grace. I had a great conversation with a sister who comes from a, a background where tongues were expressed, the miraculous gifts were expressed. And, and as she has become a wonderful part of Grace's church family, I had a great co honest conversation with her about what that's been. And it was mostly positive. She's just loved the ministry at Grace. But I know I, as I talk to her, want her and anyone in our membership to feel the freedom to express what God's doing. Yes, it's a corrective to uncontrolled, undiscerned, uh, unmanaged, if you will, to say, I don't think that's of the Lord or appropriate right now is not to quench the Spirit. It's to obey the Bible in the way we navigate the practice of these gifts. And so, we have these instructions that just lead to order here in verses 27 through 33. Instructions for corporate worship, for how to go about the practice of speaking in tongues. So if, if someone does have a word through tongues from the Lord, there needs to be someone to interpret it. The details of how this exactly works aren't laid out for us, but we know it, know it needs to be interpreted and for edification and in accordance with the instruction of God's word. If someone has a prophetic word, it needs to be understood and discerned as the people of God gather to do this. And so miraculous gifts can be controlled and have to function under the discernment of God's people in the midst of the congregation. That's why 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecy, but test everything. Hold fast to what's good, abstain from every form of evil. So we need to seek the spirit's work grounded in the word to transform us to be like Christ and bring the gospel to a needy world. And here's, here's what I want to exhort us all to. Please, we cannot let our previous experiences or lack of previous experiences. We can't let our personalities, what we're most comfortable with given our, our Enneagram or our gifts assessment survey or just our personality, we can't let that be the controlling factor of what we're okay with. We, we can't let our tradition we may have come from the culture we may have come from, oh, those things can all make a wonderful contribution. Those aren't accidents in who God's made us to be. But we can't let those things give us parameters within which we require God to work or we're out. We've got to, as John Piper says, and Kenny sent out the sermon prep this week, and he referred to this great image of John Piper where he says, we as the church need to be like a ship with our rudder firmly in the word of God, getting all our direction from God as the spirit works, but with our sails of our ship always fully unfurled to any fresh work of the spirit. And that's how we need to be. Not a, a, a rudderless ship flying all over the place, but also not rudders in pay, place with the sails furled. The, the sails not open to a fresh work of God. We need revival in our day, in our land, in our church. There are plenty of ways we could come alive to the Lord in unprecedented ways. And I, I know I, many of you have been praying for this. 
and we submit to God's sovereignty in this, but we earnestly seek this as we're commanded to do at the same time. And that can be a challenge. I remember the first time I really had a wrestle with what are called the charismatic churches, and I did not grow up in one. I didn't even know these things existed. I thought they were probably just crazy. But I signed up, as I typically do, uh, f- without doing enough research for a mission trip. When I was in college, I, was, I just finished my freshman year and I signed up to go for a summer on a mission trip and I went to Belize with an organization and I had no idea that on the whole team that was down in Belize, as I was digging outhouse holes to relocate El Salvadorian refugees for the summer, that was my job. My first mission trip was digging outhouse holes. I remember realizing the, the first day I was there, that I was the only person on the team who didn't speak in tongues. I was the only person on the team who wasn't part of their tradition and their practices. And I, for the summer, became their project. And I was clearly on the spiritual JV team in their ideas. And I said, Lord, maybe this is something you have for me. I'm not going to resist this. I'm going to open myself up to anything you may want to do in my life. And they prayed over me. And somebody even tried to teach me to start to speak in tongues. And I said, Lord, whatever you want to do, I want you to do. And I opened myself up to that. And much to their disappointment, but not to mine, nothing really happened dramatically. But what it did was make me realize that I need to seek God's work and trust him to do that work in whatever he, way he decides. The Spirit is the boss of his gifts. He gives them when and how and to what degree. So, so we pursue but submitting to the sovereignty of the Spirit in this. We pursue eagerly and earnestly and pray for God to move in power however he determines but with a submissive posture toward his sovereignty at the same time. D.L. Moody for years longed for a fresh, new, powerful work of God, and he prayed for it for years. And he was in New York City one time, and he said he started to experience the presence of God like he never had before. And he went back to his hotel room, and he said it was like the heavens opened, and the Spirit of God poured himself out on him like he had never experienced before, so much so that he had to cry out, Lord, stay your hand, I can take no more. And that's the eagerness we need to have. But for years, D.L. Moody sought the Lord, but we trust God in this. So it's this tension between pursuing but submissively pursuing at the same time. And so we pray for this. Now, a word about women. What's going on here? This is still part of the orderly worship. And he says, as in all the churches of the saints, verse 33, women should keep silent in the churches for they're not permitted to speak. So what do we make of this silence? Especially what do we make of this silence when just a couple of chapters before he talks about in the gathering, women praying and prophesying. So we've got to have an understanding of silence that includes clear instruction about the lack of silence in that way. We also need to understand Paul's and the New Testament's amazing lifting up of women, especially relative to that first century culture, both Jewish and Greco-Roman. The liberating, exalting effects of the Christian teaching was unprecedented. It was amazing. And, And we read throughout the Bible that Jesus affirmed and included women in his ministry. Mary Magdalene. We saw Lydia in the early church and Tabitha and the daughters of Philip and Priscilla helping her husband correct a great teacher, Apollos, in his doctrine. We see women acting as deacons and speaking prophetically, being major patrons to significant ministry, taking significant leadership like Junia, being someone like Phoebe, who Paul says was a great help to him, and when, especially when he was in Sancria. So women are taking unprecedented leadership roles and involvement, and it makes perfect sense that they would. Because the Bible says all men, women, are now all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And sons means co-heirs with the son Jesus. 
Not a different inheritance for the daughter and the son, but now all of God's people have that inheritance of the firstborn son in a Jewish family, which is everything. And that was amazingly good and, and revolutionary news to these women. And it, it says later, you're all uh, uh, for all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. So there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. So here the Apostle Paul, the same one who wrote the passage we just read, is saying to the Galatians, in Galatians 3, all those earthly socioeconomic and, and cultural categories are blown out of the water because of the gospel. And now there's a wonderful equality of men and women, as well as Jew or Greek, slave or free, those things don't separate us anymore. There aren't levels anymore. Listen to Romans. All who are led by the Spirit, we just read this, are sons of God for you, have received the spirit of adoption as sons and are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So throughout the New Testament, please know, the Bible is amazingly affirming of women. Husbands are commanded to love their wives as Christ loved the church, which was not the way it was then and sadly often isn't now either. Peter says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they're heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. The spiritual vitality of a husband's life depends on how well he loves his wife, in other words. That's an incredible thing to say. And we realize that all God's people are priests and ministers. But here's what Paul is getting at. Equality does not mean uniformity. Equality and worth and dignity and value and fruitfulness and effectiveness doesn't mean we're the same. No, this is equality with distinction. This is exalting women in an unprecedented place with men as co-laborers in the gospel, but with distinction. Distinction that is said in lots of other places. That, Like Jackson preached on 1 Corinthians 11, where there is this headship idea. It's that... Uh, uh, the husband's the head of the wife and God is the head of Christ, which means the woman then in that idea is in the place of Christ. Equality doesn't mean uniformity. And silent means, I believe, in this context, women shouldn't take responsibility on themselves and the authority on themselves to judge these prophecies in an authoritative way as whether they're from God or not. He's saying that, that rests in the hands, ultimately, of elders that we find should be men in a church. We, we don't have time now to go to all these passages, but Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, and she's to remain quiet. And then he doesn't say, because the situation that in your church, Timothy, is this way. He, he goes right back to creation. And he locks it into the way men and women and husbands and wives are. And he describes a very similar situation. I think this is an issue of authority that women were being quite divisive and, and um, creating a, a real challenge here to practice what Paul had just said in chapter 11 about headship and submission. And now it's, it's not happening in the gathered worship. And the very same spirit of arrogance is taking over and we're not realizing God's order in these things. So much could be said about this. But we must move on. I would love to talk to any of you about it. Maybe we should have a Q&A time at some point over Zoom and see how that goes. But uh, listen to Kathy Keller as I close this point. Kathy Keller says this in her book, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles. She says, this is where Jesus comes in. Remember, Paul says in the marriage relationship, it's, it's showing us something of, in, in 1 Corinthians eleven three. 3, it's showing us something of the relationship between the father and the son. As the son is subject to the father, so the wife is subject to the husband. And I want the world, in other words, to see something of who I am, God says. And so in her book, Kathy Keller says this, this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the reason you can trust that God's justice is behind your assigned gender role. Whether you're a man who would rather not take leadership or assume risk or a woman who wishes she could 
both get to play the Jesus role as well, it takes both men and women living out their gender roles in the safety of the home and the church to reveal to the world the fullness of the person of Jesus. I think Kathy's description of that is so good. This isn't just how we get things done in an economic way. Sometimes it's the least efficient way to do it this way. And sometimes we buck against these things, men who don't want to take leadership and women who don't want to encourage that leadership. But, but this is a beautiful design of God that when in the safety of the church and the home, this can be exercised in a way that actually shows people who God is and what the gospel is. And now finally, a word of warning. Verses 36 through 40, we read that Paul calls them out. And he says, or was it from you the word of God came? Or are you the only ones who's at reach? In other words, the way he's describing things is the way churches in general are practicing things and they've gone rogue from the ways the churches under the apostolic teaching have learned to practice their relationships and the gifts of the Spirit. And so he gives them the word of warning. He puts them in their place under his apostolic authority, which is so being challenged in this church. They, like the rest of the churches, must submit to the teaching Becomes a, because it comes from the authority of God. And then this stunning verse, God won't recognize you if you don't recognize these apostolic authoritative teaching. I think that's judgment language. I, I think there, he's questioning, like he does in 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Because remember, they had all these spiritual experiences, but they, there was gross immorality in this church as well. So there's reason to say, how legit are you? If you're veering from the teaching of the word of God, how legit are you in these things? And he says, God won't recognize you if you don't. Now, here's how I want to close. This is so helpful to think what we do when we gather. But I was so impressed this week as I thought about all the heartbreaking things going on in our world and in our life and in our church. And I realized that the key to this whole thing is verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. That's our anchor. That's what we've been thinking about this morning in our time of corporate worship. Who God is. He's a God of peace. There's no division. There's no chaos. There's no contradiction. There's no division in God. He's a God of peace. He's a God of perfect harmony. There's no division in him. He's the God of shalom, of peace, of things as they should be. And our world is so not a world of peace, but Jesus is the Prince of Peace. And when we have our lives transformed by him, we become representatives of the Prince of Peace and we become ministers of reconciliation and we become men and women, ministers of the gospel together who shine a light in a dark world, who bring answers in Christ where the world has no ultimate answers. We're the ones who are transformed to be agents of peace. He saves us from our sin and death and hell and if he can save us from that and ultimately will one day wipe away every tear and make all things new. That's where everything's heading when we think about Christ and what he's promised to do for us. So, let me make some concluding points, just four. One, this is all about love. And it's all about seeking an experience that understands the gospel. And I think the understanding of who God is is the God of peace, Jesus is the Prince of Peace, leads us to this experience. This is so beautiful, this description of this experience in chapter 14 Verse 24, listen, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he's convicted by all, he's called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Falling on his face, that's the picture of someone who understands the gospel. Someone who's fallen on his face. I, as I've read this passage in the, in the weeks leading up to this, and, and this week I thought of George Floyd's face on the ground. And I, from what I read, he was a believer who loved Jesus and had a ministry. And he's in heaven now. 
If what I read is true about George Floyd, he understood the gospel. He had bowed his face to the ground. He had understood who Jesus is. And we still have all the problems of the world to deal with, but he doesn't anymore. And we need to seek this experience for unbelievers who are in our midst and for ourselves falling on our face, having our hearts revealed to us and saying, surely God is among you. That's what I want us to experience when we gather. That's what I want visitors and unbelievers who come to our gathering. I don't know what's going on, but God's here. I want them to know that. I don't want them just to know, oh, these people really know the Bible well, although that's so essential as we've seen. I don't want them to say, oh, they're nice people, they have a food bank, and they care for orphans and do all these good things. Oh, I, want, I want that to be something, though, that points them to the presence of God among us. And so they fall on their faces before the Prince of Peace and find that he alone can free them from their sin, their greatest enemy. And the death that awaits and the judgment that awaits, they fall on their face and say, surely God is among you. And so, so we recognize the gospel, one, is the only thing that'll really save us. And what that means is we hate anything that's opposed to the character of God, including sin and evil and hatred and racism and bigotry and, and th that so many people are, are poor in our world. And we need to be people who hate evil. We love well by hating well. Psalm 97, 10, oh, you who love the Lord hate evil. He preserves the lives of his saints. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold to what is good, hold fast to what is good. So we hate evil, we hate sin, we hate injustice. We hate from the depths of our being that for eight minutes and 46 seconds, George Floyd had a knee on his neck. Almost three minutes of that after he had become unconscious. We hate that. There's something in us that wars against that. And if you don't understand the hatred of that, the anger of that, the righteous indignation of that, I'm not sure you understand God very well. And so we need to recognize the rightness of raging against the darkness. Two. We need to realize that each of us is part of the problem. It's not just the, them out there. You see, there's a humble anger. There's a righteous indignation that realizes I'm part of the problem too. I've contributed my sin and my rebellion against my creator that's caused this mess in the first place. You know the famous story, G.K. Chesterton was part of authors in Britain who were asked to write an essay entitled, What's Wrong with the World? And his submission was just two words. I am. And that's it. We, we need to realize that we're implicated in all of this. And I was talking to my dear brother Darren early on the phone about all of this. This amazing family, the earlies who go to Grace. Uh, this brother has been such a, a good friend to me since they started coming here. And I'm so thankful for him. And I just needed to talk to Darren this week, this African-American brother, and, and hear what he was thinking because I was having, as I watched that video, just one time, one and a half times, I was having homicidal thoughts. And what I would have done if I were there. And do you know what Darren said to me? He said, I've been teaching my kids, Sonia and I, my wife and I, have been teaching our kids this week to not just pray for our country and for George Floyd's family, but to pray for the man who killed him. We've been praying for him, that God would work in his life. And that was so humbling to me and such a con convicting thing to me. And I need to realize that my anger that can be righteous and justified needs to be grounded in a contrite, repentant spirit as well. Realizing that I'm part of the problem too. And we need to go to war then. We need to go to war. Not with the weapons of the world, but the weapons of warfare God gives us because he tells us that the primary battlefield, oh, we're good citizens, we vote according to our Christian conscience. We get involved in community endeavors. We do all those things, but we ultimately realize our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in high places. And so we go to war then with the weapons of warfare that accord with that, which is prayer. The gospel of peace the word of God, the fellowship of the saints, 
serving those in our community, especially those so different than we are, or not with the same privileges that we have. And that means when we think about what we are when we gather, we need to think about who we are when we're home, when we're in our neighborhood, when we're not gathered, because who we are when we gather will only ultimately be the result of who we are when we walk in the doors to gather. And if we're not gospel people who understand what Jesus has done for us as our central identity and realize that he's created us now for good works, what we do as a gathering will be hollow and empty if that's not what's happening. We'll never be more than who we are when we walk through the doors of the sanctuary. We must be gospel people if our worship's going to be edifying and gospel advancing. Our gathering helps us become this but we must be making the connections between the character of God, the God we worship, and the gospel in our homes and community. This means we must be people of integrity, hope, justice, compassion, and love who care deeply for those who feel so wounded by this and care so deeply for police officers who are just and would never do this sort of thing, who now have their jobs a thousand times harder than they've ever been. We're trying to, to agree with the protesters and stop looting at the same time. We've got several LAPD officers here. Please be praying for them as we will be tonight. And so we need to do these things. That's why Martin Luther King said, power without love is reckless and abusive and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best, Martin Luther King said, is love implementing the demands of justice and justice at his best is power connecting everything that stands against love. Can you hear that he was the head of the Southern Christian Leadership, Leadership Council? This is driven by a Christian biblical worldview of human beings made in God's image deserving love that is displayed most clearly in the cross. I don't know anybody who understood the things better in my life that I'm talking about than Phil Davis, our dear brother and minister, and, and Lynn and the Davis family, if you're watching this now or later, we love you, we're with you, we're for you in this, we're praying for you, we're brokenhearted with you, and we are here for the long haul as your church family. But I want to give Phil Davis the last word this morning. My dear brother sent out an email on December 12th, 2014. As he and Lynn and the rest of the family were going through the terrible loss of their granddaughter, Elena Joy. And Phil writes these words as Alan and Rachel, his son and daughter-in-law, are going through this loss. This is what he writes to those in his community. This is what Phil Davis said, who we lost, but heaven gained on Friday evening. This is what Phil said. It's tough to watch as a parent, to be hurting for your own loss of a grandchild, You'll never get to know and to hold this side of heaven and to see your children hurt as well. And then Phil writes this, but God, with three exclamation points, but God, you see in some way Jarvis Taylor, who gave me this sweatshirt, and Phil, and from society's vantage point, are really different from each other. But they weren't different in the most important ways. They're gospel men. And so Phil and, and Jarvis think the same way, and they talk the same way. Phil says in the midst of losing his granddaughter, but God, but God is a gracious and loving and powerful and merciful and compassionate and faithful and comforting God whose heart is moved by our pain and hurt and sorrow and he provides his Holy Spirit and he provides the family of God including you who've prayed and upheld Rachel and Alan and our family already. Thank you, he says. He says, I forwarded below an email Rachel wrote yesterday afternoon to members of her family and close friends that give testimony to the kind of God we have and the work he's already done in her and Alan's life. 
That helps give meaning and purpose even now, Phil said, to this seemingly otherwise tragic event. Think not of what it says about them. Oh, Phil was always redirecting the glory to Jesus. And people gave him a lot of glory because he loved so well with Lynn and has a legacy for generations to come because of it. But he said, don't think about what that says about them, but what it says about our gracious Lord. May he be praised and glorified in all our responses and in our lives. We trust the Lord for his plans and timing. There will be days ahead when I'm sure the hurt and sorrow and sense of loss will be more intense than on other days. The grieving process will take time, but God, may we always be led back to focus on him. Grateful for all you do, we love you. Phil, for Lynn as well. We'll give Phil the last word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our brother. He didn't know that on this day he would be encouraging us so deeply with his perspective he had throughout his life to deal with his death. Lord, we're hurting. We're brokenhearted. But we're sure you are who you say you are. As Phil says, the God of love and compassion and power. And we know you care and draw near to the brokenhearted. And we're brokenhearted, Lord. And we thank you that Phil is helping us even this morning, continuing his ministry as as will be continued through his uh, children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Lord, I, I thank you for his parents who pointed him to you. I thank you for the amazing grace you've given us through our brother. And Lord, we thank you for the amazing grace. Most of all, you've given us through Jesus. And we pray we would cling to Jesus and him crucified far, far more than anything else. And we pray these things in his mighty and matchless and merciful and compassionate name. Amen.